I think anyone working in a dialysis unit or being treated in one is incredibly aware of the amount of waste that is produced with every treatment, and most of that is plastic waste. Our current resource utilization is not sustainable, so just continuing to do what we're currently doing isn't an option if we want to have dialysis be a resource in the future. Welcome to the 10th episode of the Nephron segment, where nephrology is always concentrated, sometimes convoluted, never dilute. Join a group of nephrons as we try to push the boundaries of kidney medicine. Today, we'll be discussing green nephrology and the Nephron segment celebration of Earth Day. I'm Ellie Mannon, an MD-PhD student at the Medical College of Georgia. I'm Sam Kent. I'm a transplant nephrologist at Johns Hopkins. I'm Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University. Hi, I'm Samira Farouk. I'm a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai in New York City. Joining us today on the podcast are Drs. Catherine Barraclough and Mega Salami. So could you please just tell us about yourself and how you became interested in this topic of green nephrology? So my name's Catherine. I'm a nephrologist from Melbourne, Australia. I work predominantly in the field of transplantation clinically. I've had a long-standing and really deep love of the natural world, but I was never particularly engaged in environmental issues until probably 10 or so years ago now when I finished all of my medicine-related study. And at that point, I, I think I, I stopped and started thinking more about the world around me and very quickly became quite overwhelmed by the extent and the, and the depth of environmental issues facing us. And at that point, I, I really had a bit of a career crisis because I, I started wondering what the point was of, of looking after people who were unwell and trying to keep people healthy when we were faced with these really what I saw as much bigger problems and, and potentially reaching a point where we may no longer in time have a planet that could sustain us. But, you know, I really enjoyed medicine and my skill set was within medicine. So I started thinking about how I might translate that desire to kind of address environmental problems to the nephrology space. And fortunately, I didn't have to look too far because I very quickly realized that healthcare broadly has a very significant environmental impact. And within healthcare, Kidney care, and particularly the delivery of dialysis, has a, a disproportionately high role to play. And so that's really how I, I moved into this green nephrology space. And I've been really focusing most of my non clinical attention and time um, in this area ever since then. I'm Aga Salani. I am one of the general nephrologists at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I have a niche in home dialysis. I've had an interest in environmentalism. At, even in childhood. And as I've grown into this dialysis role, I started looking into the impact on the environment and realized within the healthcare realm, it plays the largest role in the carbon footprint, water use, and waste generation, and started reading more about green dialysis initiatives and have become very interested in what we can do to have less impact on the environment. So Catherine, you mentioned, you know, there's a disproportionate amount of waste generated with the standard hemodialysis. Has this been quantified at any point in the world over or even for a region? And how do you think this can be produced? So I think anyone working in a dialysis unit or being treated in one is intuitively incredibly aware of the amount of waste that 
is produced with every treatment, and most of that is plastic waste. There really has been very little formal examination of the, both the types and the amount of, of waste, though, generated by different dialysis systems. Probably the best information we have comes out of a study from Italy a number of years ago. What this did was look at a number of different dialysis systems and showed that anywhere between 1.5 and 8 kilos of waste is produced per treatment. And that difference really arises from different dialysis systems and different consumable sets. There's been another study from the UK that suggested that about 2.5 kilos were produced at that centre from each dialysis treatment. In terms of how we can reduce the amount of waste from each treatment, in many ways we're constrained as people working on the floor by what we're provided by industry and, and our centres. So everything now is single use. You get what you're given with a particular dialysis system. Probably the point where, where people on the floor can have the biggest impact, though, is looking at what they do with the waste that is generated. So many will hopefully know that there are a number of different types of waste in healthcare. So there's general waste that goes to landfill. There's then the kind of items that can be recycled. And then there's the infectious or the hazardous waste. And of all of those, the really problematic one is the hazardous waste because that needs to be either burnt or chemically sterilised before you can put it into landfill or, or get rid of it. And that's incredibly environmentally and financially costly, that treatment method. If we can segregate waste really closely and carefully at the point of care, then you can reduce the amount of clinical waste and therefore reduce the amount of environmental damage that comes from that. Some work we've done at my centre has shown that if you get all the nurses and clinicians on board, you can reduce your clinical waste, or we did by about a third, and really significant financial savings come from that, which I think is a great incentive in any dialysis unit. I suppose the other really important thing is, though, that, that we can do is, is look to advocating to industry for better waste systems. So, you know, what we need is consumable sets that can either be recycled or when they are disposed of at the end of life, break down into something that's not environmentally toxic. So there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done from industry and related groups to give us better systems to deal with in the first place. I'd like to hear a little bit more about what specific things were done to lower that waste by a third. And while you're doing that, can you tell us how you got your colleagues to get on board? So in terms of how it was done, it was just really simply nurses taking a lot of care. So it's how we did it was there was a fantastic nurse unit manager. You really just need some sort of champion or leader in a unit. And if there's someone kind of high up in the leadership hierarchy, that really helped. And she was incredibly motivated, got all of her staff on board. And they did probably the most important thing was as they generated the waste, they had a really good setup, bin set up around each chair and they put the waste into the right bins. They also spoke with our waste provider and looked at sort of novel recycling stream so anything that could be recycled was recycled they went to local pet shelters and asked if they'd take all their leftover gauze rather than throwing them in the bin so they went to you know sort of huge amounts of effort but once the system was in place it was a really streamlined system the staff took a huge amount of pride in it the patients joined in they saved the hospital a lot of money they won a prize from the hospital for that so I think you know just it was a really fantastic example of this co-benefits that can flow from environmental initiatives but I think the key was that the champion and the leader at the start. Is it still going on? Yes, it is. And it's been sustained over about five years, which is yeah, fantastic. 
maybe this is jumping ahead and also maybe a, a dumb question, but can you explain the difference between the waste generated by hemodialysis versus peritoneal dialysis? Is one better than the other one, just purely from a waste environment standpoint? I think it's tricky to say whether one's better or worse. In terms of the impact that particular kinds of waste have on the environment, a lot of that study has never been done. Also, if you look at, for instance, peritoneal dialysis in Australia, one of our providers gives PVC plastic bags, the other gives a completely different plastic composite. So we don't really know which of those is better or worse. They've both got their own problems. If you're comparing hemodialysis with peritoneal dialysis, I think the really important thing is that because peritoneal dialysis is a daily therapy, it actually produces more waste per patient per year. So it's generally thought that peritoneal dialysis is is a potentially more environmentally friendly therapy, but from a waste perspective, it's certainly not. You not only have all of those plastic bags to dispose of, but you've got to transport them and chuck them across and between countries. So the answer is transplant is the most waste friendly. <laughs> well, I think from every aspect, it is a more environmentally friendly therapy. And as an added bonus, it's better for most patients too. So I think that raises a really interesting point. And when we're looking at the really big picture, what we have to think about is not just clinical benefits and also cost impacts, but also the environmental impacts of different care pathways and Really clearly, if we can prevent kidney disease in the first place, we will reduce the impact of kidney care delivery. If we can push patients towards transplantation and, and optimum supportive care pathways, that's going to be best for patients and for the environment too. We're always going to have dialysis so, and so then the next question is how do we address the impact of the two dialysis therapies? Sort of like the waste hierarchy, except it's the treatment hierarchy. In Australia, we one of our industry providers offers a recycling program for PVC for home patients. So What they do is they drop off supplies one week and as they drop them off, they pick up all of the PVC from patients and they take it and recycle it. I think a really fantastic thing about that is home patients have a lot of trouble dealing with the quantity of waste that they deal with. It usually won't fit in a single curbside bin. So it takes that onus and burden off them, which is something that's really important if we want to encourage home therapies. It also means we have to manufacture less raw product and there's also not that the toxic effects that come with disposal and and the company that does the recycling turns it into play mats for children and hoses and that sort of thing. It's currently only offered to patients in metro areas in certain parts of Australia but you know I think that's exactly the sort of program that we need to sort of spread out in Australia and I think internationally if we're going to keep using PVC. So I think both of you have talked about how HD, CKD really can impact the environment. But to sort of flip that a little for each of you, how is climate change currently impacting the care for individuals with AKI or CKD? Dr. Solani, what do you think? As the temperatures rise, there's concern that there will be an increase in acute kidney injury related to volume depletion and rhabdomyolysis. We may see more chronic kidney disease from repeated acute kidney injury episodes. And with the rise in temperature and increase in waterborne insects like mosquitoes passing diseases, we could see more acute kidney injury with Issues like flooding and the increase in rodent-borne illnesses, there's a lot of opportunity to see more AKI. With dialysis patients, one of the concerns is we are seeing more weather-related disasters, and a lot of that is related to climate change with things like hurricanes and tornadoes. 
patients are not able to come to their dialysis treatments, or even if they were able to come, the dialysis unit may not be able to stay open. And so people may have to have shortened treatments or may miss their treatments altogether. And even for patients that are at home, if they're not able to get electricity or running water during these disasters, they also may not be able to do their dialysis treatments. I mean, I think Hopefully, many listeners will know that over a decade ago now, climate change was re- very clearly recognised as the greatest health threat facing humanity. I think what's been increasingly recognised over the last five or so years is that it's not just this broad public health threat, it is in almost every individual organ system that is at risk. And really, as Mega said, the kidneys are particularly vulnerable, and that's partly because of the effects of heat. There's studies from across continents showing increased hospitalizations from acute kidney injury during heat waves. And there's a lot of work going on now to try and quantify the burden of that in different regions. Um, as you also said, there's an increased risk of chronic kidney disease. If you're getting recurrent episodes of acute kidney injury, there's good evidence to show that the risk of stone disease increases as temperatures rise. There's a reasonably good study out of the United States that shows that stone disease alone in the context of future global warming will impose significant costs on the US healthcare system. So I think when we're thinking about this idea or this area of green nephrology, we have to think of it in two parts. Firstly is we've got a big problem that's not going away and we have to really get prepared. We need to know how to manage these climate-related kidney diseases and how to prepare our healthcare systems and our patients so that we can cope. But then we also have to avoid the unmanageable. And so that means doing everything we can to not contribute more than we need to to the problem. And that's all of the things we've been talking about, the waste and the water and the carbon impact. I think when we think about you know rising temperatures um, in kidneys, we think about not only stones, but also Mesoamerican nephropathy has been well described You know, in sugarcane workers in Nicaragua, pathogenesis, uric acid, fructose, heat. Do you feel that with rising temperatures that this disease entity will spread potentially to other parts of the country? Or do you think this is really a geographically limited disease process? My, my feeling is the jury's probably still out. The, the you know, specific cause of, of Mesoamerican nephropathy or this CKD of unknown origin is, is still out. You know, very possibly it could be an environmental toxin, a pesticide. But what we do know is it is really predominantly seen in very hot parts of the world. And so it's, you know, there is reasonable consensus that heat is likely to be a contributor. I think there's certainly risk that it could be seen in in many other parts of the world. There's a lot of interest in that in Australia. We're obviously a very hot part of the world, a very dry part of the world. And so, you know, I think that's something where a lot of work's needed to, to map out the risk in different regions. As we're getting more and more conscious of these effects, I think we need to start thinking about how we can even put this into curriculums for trainees. Meg, I wonder if you've started training your fellows and if not, well, how can we put in a blueprint for trainees to know how to approach these areas? So I gave my grand rounds talk on the environmental impact of dialysis. This was directed towards the entire division, but of course, as the fellows learn, I think it's important for them to take those ideas wherever they go after they're done with their training. For me, in the Midwest, we have very easy access to water, and there's not as much interest in water preservation here as there might be in Western United States, where they've had the driest 
22 years and almost all of written history. So I think as we worry more and more about water scarcity and preservation, they may be able to take some of the ideas that I brought up and things that have been done in other parts of the world and apply that to their units as they go along, either that are already open or as they're building new ones. And hopefully, even though it's not a scarce resource here, we can start to make some of those changes, especially with some of the more simple ideas that I brought up, like adding solar panels to reduce electricity, which will not only help with the environment, but also with costs. So there's a lot of people that might be interested in working on that process together. And looking to the other hemisphere in Australia, of course, in Australia, it's been, you know, it's been recognized climate change is a big deal and it's disproportionately affected you. Have your trainees become more conscious of this when it comes to nephrology and its related issues, Catherine? In Australia, there's been increasing attention over the last, again, probably five, ten years in incorporating environmental teachings into medical school curricula. And so that's both angles. It's both the climate health, environmental health literacy, but also healthcare sustainability. Um, there's sort of deans working groups and a number of bodies that are really focused on that and, and some great things happening. I feel there's a huge amount of work to be done within nephrology still. There's nothing formal in the nephrology curriculum. There's a, a group of nephrologists who are quite passionate in Australia and we've made a really big push to have presentations in all of our scientific meetings and we've developed environmental research prizes and those sorts of things to try and increase awareness, but that's all sort of informal and there's not the um, top-down recognition from those that design the programs yet that, that this has to be part of teaching. And I, I find on a day-to-day -day basis now in Australia in summer, I speak to nearly every patient I see about climate-related issues because they're all on diuretics, they're all on ACE inhibitors, medications that you know inhibit their ability to thermoregulate. And so they need to be aware that on hot days they have to do things differently. And I think you know, for us to educate patients like that, we need to understand that risk ourselves, exactly what the risk is when you have a prolonged number of heat days over, over summer in certain parts of the world. I think those heat days need to be treated kind of like sick days. I know there's not a lot of data to suggest withholding certain medications for sick days, but there was a recent consensus that came out about recommendations and we don't really talk about heat in that. And I think it's, you know, it's the same exact idea. And the other thought that I'm having is particularly in the US, we have a big issue with recruiting nephrology applicants and how do we make nephrology more attractive to more junior trainees? And one avenue has been interest in social determinants of health and how to improve equity in nephrology care. And I really see this as an extension of that. And I think there are a lot of trainees out there that would be potentially interested in and doing this kind of research that have this interest as both of you have. And I think, Catherine, you said the nature of the world and the environment and how to preserve it for the future. And so I think we need to take advantage of that and make this more known that this is a really active area in this field where there's a lot of great work that can be done to make things better. What would your pitch be to somebody that maybe hasn't caught the green nephrology bug? How would you convince them? I suspect to what I said at the beginning, I can't see any point in trying to keep our patients well and to prevent kidney disease if there's not a planet to sustain them. So we need, it, it, in many ways, it's like seeing a patient and telling them to take medications, but they can't afford them. You've got to create an environment for them where they can thrive. And, and so I feel very much that this is 
absolutely part of our responsibility as healthcare providers, as kidney care providers. Of course, that's my bias though. I would tell them that our current resource utilization is not sustainable. So just continuing to do what we're currently doing isn't an option if we want to have dialysis be a resource in the future. I think it's especially important to us as nephrologists because we do have a large impact, but also because climate change will directly impact the rates of acute kidney injury and chronic kidney disease. So if we really want to take care of our patients and our future patients, we need to start thinking about this sooner rather than later. And there's one other thing when we're talking about trainees is to say that I think the time is really right for this. So there is huge awareness now that we have this incredible problem and the world is moving to address it. When I started talking about this 10 years ago, no one was really listening. And now there's huge amounts of interest. The research opportunities are large. I find journals are really interested in publishing anything environmental related. The quality of work coming out so far is not always great. So, you know, good quality research in this space is a really ripe area for trainees. There's huge opportunities to save money. When you conserve resources, you tend to save money. So there's lots of benefits for healthcare systems as well. Um, the World Congress of Nephrology has held environmental sessions for the last couple of years. The ASN has usually had some sort of presentation, certainly in Australia we have. I, I think as, as a sign of how much interest this is gathering, the International Society of Nephrology is in the process of convening an international working group and, and the hope is there'll be buy-in from all of the major societies into that so that we can all work together. And I think if we could get that kind of global working group up and going, our bargaining power with industry, our ability for change is really huge. The research into innovations in dialysis and including kind of wearable and implantable devices, it's beneficial for the quality of life of patients if these devices work, but also could potentially have a large impact on these environmental issues that we're discussing. Increasing funding for nephrology research, I think, would just really make a huge difference in this area. And I think for any research that is done for other reasons, environmental impact and environmental considerations need to be part of it. You don't present a research proposal without considering the cost implications. We can't be proposing new therapies at this point in history that have environmentally damaging effects. So it just needs to be this cross-cutting theme that is incorporated into everything we do moving forwards. As we come to the end of the Nephron segment, a big thank you to both Dr. Barakoff and Dr. Solani for being on this episode of the Nephron segment. Now, one final question that we like to ask all of our guests is what brings each of you joy? For me, that's an easy one. Anytime I'm out in the natural world, I experience joy. We're so incredibly blessed in Australia to have amazing places to visit, so much to go and see and do that is natural and that absolutely brings me joy for me it's my dog <laughs> so his name is mozart he is 10 years old but i found him as a stray when he was a puppy and took him in and we've traveled together go on hikes together he's 15 pounds perfect lap dog he's just wonderful a big thank you to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Nephron segment where nephrology is always concentrated, sometimes convoluted, never daily.